Thanks for joining us today for the Eagle Drive Baptist Church podcast with Pastor Chris Thorne. Eagle Drive is a Bible-believing New Testament Baptist Church where Jesus is preeminent and the gospel of grace is at center stage. We are devoted to connecting with God, growing together, serving others, and sharing our faith. If you would like to know more about our ministry, visit EagleDriveBaptist.com. Now, here's today's message. Psalm chapter 24, Psalm chapter 24. If you have your Bible, go ahead and, and stand, if you would, Psalm chapter number 24, Psalm chapter number 24. We're going to go ahead and read all 10 verses this morning, so follow along if you would. The Bible says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Great question here. Great two questions in verse number three, which we'll look at later in the message. Or who shall stand in his holy place? Excuse me. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation that seek him, that seek his face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. But back in verse number three, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, I pray that you be with us for the next few minutes as we look in your word. And as we start this new series, something that really you put upon my heart several weeks ago in a devotion that I was reading, and you kind of spurred this series. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to to look at the truths that we're going to learn, not just today, but over the next three or four weeks. And Lord, if there's something in our lives that need to be reset, Lord, I pray that you would help us to reset, to get us back functioning properly and optimally the way that you intended us to function. Lord, I love you. I thank you so much for who you are, for what you're going to do, for what you already have done. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. As I said, this series really kind of started from a devotion I was reading probably two or three weeks ago. And I was just looking through a, a, a Bible app that I use, Uversion. Uh, you can get it through the App Store or Google Play Store or whatever. And I, I just stumbled across it. It was just called The Reset. And it's a lot of the principles I'm not even actually going to be using in this series, but it, it started uh, my mind thinking, which is sometimes a good thing, sometimes a bad thing. But uh, the very first devotion, I, I just want to read it very quickly. It says, it's time to reset and place your focus back on who really matters. Consider these next few days as an opportunity to refresh your soul through the word and to recharge your spirit. Life can come at you fast, and it's so easy to get to the point where we feel as though we're losing control or running on empty. Ever felt that way? I think many of us have, right? However, one thing remains in the midst of all the demands and all the pressures that life brings, and that is this. God is your source. It's in him you live. In him you move. In him you have your being. He is the source of your strength. He is the key to your peace and the reason in which you live. Are you still connected to the source? And it started getting me thinking, am I still connected to the source? Let me start today in asking a question. 
what is the purpose of a reset in general? Why do we have to reset things typically? Somebody tell me. Justin. Do what? Just start over. Fresh start. What else? Malfunction. Yeah, what else? These are good. What, what are some other reasons why you have to reset things? Carrie. Fix to fix a mistake. Nobody's ever made a mistake, right? <laughs> Carrie's made plenty for all of us, right? Yes, amen. Uh, what else? What else? What are some other reasons why we have to reset something or reset things? To make it anew? Okay. Uh, anybody ever had to reset your phone? Yeah, why do we have to reset your phone? It's already kind of been mentioned because sometimes it's malfunctioning, right? It's not functioning properly. You know, it kind of worked out per- perfectly. Uh, you know, Michael Eaton this week, he had to uh, get his computer reset. Now, you know, he's a big Apple guy. And I'm not against Apple at all, but he's a big Apple guy and loves Apple. And he loves to demean people that do not have, I mean, he loves to put down, I mean, he just loves to talk to other people that do not have Apple products, that his product is superior. But what happened, and I'm just joking with him, but what happened was, uh, he had installed um, a beta version of the newest software that's coming out, which is a test or a trial version. And, and I've done that before on computers. And usually there's no problem. But what had happened with his computer is it stopped working optimally. It didn't work at all. Uh, he couldn't use some of the apps. And it was very hard for him to do some of the, the jobs that he needed to do here at, at, at the office. So he had to take it over and, and get it reset. So it would actually work properly. So it actually was a perfect illustration. So thank you for messing up your computer this week, Michael. I greatly appreciate it. I'm sure you didn't appreciate the cost that went with it, but it was a perfect illustration for the message. But the point I'm trying to make is sometimes we have to reset things because they are not working properly. They are not functionally, functioning, lowly, whatever, functioning. I can't talk. I need to reset my speech. They are not functioning op- optimally. And the series goal, I might have it in your notes, I may not, but the series goal is this, to reset whatever it is in your life that is not functioning optimally. And the core truth that we're going to look at this morning specifically is this, the reset that Jesus offers begins with you and me. When we allow our lives to be reset from sin, from cynicism, from self-reliance, back to faith in Jesus, something happens. We get his grace, his love, his transformation. Uh, the past few years, I've at, at different points in the year, I, I've preached different messages, and I didn't even necessarily think about it until I did this series this year. Uh, but the past few years, I've preached messages that have really all lined up. Two years ago, in 2017, I preached a series called Renew, or Renewing Our Passion for God. And really, when you think about renew, that means to restart, kind of get us to, to recharge a little bit. Uh, last year, I preached a series, Sila, Sila, Salu, whatever you want to say. And that was really kind of focusing on God, resting on God, resting in his word. Uh, this year, the Lord has kind of prompted me to preach this series, Reset, to get us to, be, to function properly, optimally, to get us to understand that there might be things in our life that are not working properly. And, and I want you to look introspectively for the next four weeks. And what I mean is to look inwardly, to see if there's an area in your life that is not functioning properly. Just like sometimes with our computers or our phones, We have to reset them because they're not working. So is there something in our life that is not working properly? And I've seen many times in my life that it can happen over a matter of moments. Here's what I mean. I could be reading my Bible every day. I could be in church every time the doors are open, Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. And there can still be a drift away from God. It's happened in my life, and I'm sure it's happened in your life as well. 
I think last year I gave the illustration in that SELA series that sometimes what needs to happen is there needs to be a retuning or a recalibrating of our hearts because we don't necessarily notice it. We don't necessarily notice that we're getting out of tune with God and his word. We're reading his word, we're, we're praying, we're maybe even teaching a class or we're coming and visiting people and trying to witness, but we don't even realize how out of tune we get until we compare ourselves with what is in tune. And then all of a sudden you notice just how out of tune our lives is, are. The, the point I made last year, I think I had Brother Jones up here and he was playing the guitar and had someone playing the piano and you know he was playing by himself and it sounded great until it was played against the piano and it sounded horrible. And that's how our lives are sometimes. Where on the surface, we might think our life is going great, but in compared to what God wants us, it's out of tune. So the next few weeks, again, I want us to look inwardly to see if there's something in our life that needs to be reset. Our theme this year is thrive. This is understanding our purpose, that God has made us for more than ourselves. You know, when I started this year, I had a desire for where this theme was going to go. I believe that God had given me a purpose for this theme, and, and as the year progressed, I still firmly believe that that's what God wanted me to preach but the desire that I had at the beginning of the year kind of shifted from what I thought the theme was supposed to be to what it's actually supposed to be. Here's what I mean. I think I mentioned this in the past few weeks. <clears throat> I thought we were supposed to go a certain direction, but then God had to shift my focus and realize that, you know what? It's not about that direction. It's actually about this direction. Maybe my heart was getting just a little bit out of tune towards God, so he had to help me understand that maybe it's time for you to reset. And as I said last week, for the next five months specifically, what I want us to do in this church is to be fully equipped. This might not be a thriving year for us in general, but I want to give principles that will help us understand what it means to thrive in our Christian life on a daily basis. Because God desires that we thrive, that we flourish, that we have that abundant life that he talks about in John chapter 10, saying that we have a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. We might not have that joy right now, but God wants us to have that joy. And there's often a natural drift away from the things of God. The direction of our heart is constantly getting knocked off course, so we have to get back to the standard. Now, first and foremost, I want you to understand that if you're not saved, if you're not saved, if you're not a child of God, then you can't get back to the standard because the standard needs to be God. You have to be a child of God. You have to have asked Jesus to save you of your sins, to come into your heart, to be your savior. And if you've done that, that's very important. But if you haven't, that's the first step. But if you have gotten saved, if you're a child of God, if you've trusted him for salvation and your heart has gotten out of tune to him just a little bit, then it's time to get back to the standard. It's time to get back to where he wants you to be. It's time to get back to understanding what worshiping him is all about. You see, when we focus on our circumstances, we get out of tune with the truth. And it's so easy to focus on our circumstances, isn't it? It's so easy to focus on all the things that are going on around us instead of on what the truth is and what Jesus says in his word. In Psalm chapter 24, this is a great picture now, to understand this psalm specifically, we're going to have to go back. But before we go back, let me give a very, very brief outline of this passage. 
Here's a quick outline of Psalm chapter 24. Verses one and two is talking about a recognition of God's power. This is all about his, um, his sovereignty, that God is in control. Psalm chapter 24, verses three through six is a revelation of God's purity. This is all about his holiness. Psalm 24, verses seven through 10 talks about a realization of God's presence. This is all about his triumph. But now in order to understand this, we have to go back. Because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself, is the word of God. And the great thing about studying God's word is one passage may be talking about something very similar in another passage. So when you read this, you might not understand the context of what David, the psalmist, is talking about here. When David is writing this, he is writing this at the time when the Ark of the Covenant is coming back to Jerusalem. And this story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6 when, when the Ark of the Covenant is returning back to Jerusalem and, and David is dancing in the streets. And, and as it says, he's dancing, basically uh, danced out of his clothes and he's excited. He's worshiping God. That's the significance of what's going on. But let's go even farther back. So take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 4 because this is very important, very imperative to hear what happened prior to this psalm. And I think setting the stage here this morning will help us understand some very important lessons from the life of Israel to the life of us today and the application that can be made. Who was one of the most prominent enemies of Israel during the Old Testament days? The Philistines. Uh, that was who David had fought off uh, at the time 1 Samuel was written. 1 Samuel chapter 4, probably some 70, 80, 90 years later is when he fought Goliath. But one of the prominent enemies of Israel was the Philistines. So here we have Israel and the Philistines at war against one another. So follow along, if you would, in your Bibles as I read this story and portray the events that happened. And the word of Samuel, he was the prophet at the time, came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle. They were the enemy and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten. They killed some of their men before the Philistines, and they slew out of the army in the field about how many men? 4,000 men. So understand that. How many Israelites died on this day in battle? 4,000. Very important to understand what's going on, the significance, the scene that is setting forth. So Israel and the Philistines are at war. They're at odds against each other. On this day in battle, 4,000 Israelites lost their life. Let's continue the story. Verse number three, Israel had an idea. You ever had an idea? You ever had an idea that didn't turn out the way you thought it would? And I have many ideas like that. Just ask my wife. Uh, I had one of those yesterday. Uh, <laughs> I definitely need some help with this. But um, uh, our, um, what am I thinking? Yeah, microwave. Uh, we kept, uh, it kept uh, flipping a breaker and everything like that. So I had a great idea of taking the microwave, taking the plug, and plugging it into a uh, power strip, and then plugging that into somewhere else, thinking, okay, this is going to work great. And all of a sudden, it sparked, and it just fried. So uh, Mike Esslinger, I need a lot of help, okay? So maybe you can help me with that. I'd appreciate that. I meant to talk to you before, but I talk to you now. Uh, so anyway, I had a great idea that, man, this is going to work. So it saves me, you know, the 50 steps going over to the church kitchen to microwave something. So, you know, I didn't want to get in the heat. And anyway, uh, I thought it was a great idea. I thought it would work. I fried the microwave. It's not working. Uh, it just made a mess. Uh, so anyway, what I'm trying to make is sometimes we have an idea that we think is going to be good, but it's not too good. 
Israel has an idea. Verse number three. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, they gathered together, wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh. Now, the ark of the covenant of the Lord was the presence of God. That's where the presence of God rested. It was in Shiloh. That was the dwelling place at this time. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, may save us out of the hand of our enemies. Now, this is very important because they have this idea that, hey, let's gather the ark and let's bring it out into battle with us. Because this is God's presence, so when we bring God's presence out, it's going to encourage us. It's going to charge us up. It's going to scare our enemy. This is a great idea. But understand, this was not God's idea. Verse number four. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring forth the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelt between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. They were excited. Hey, the Ark of the Lord is with us. We're going to have victory on this day. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood the Ark of the Lord was coming to the camp and the Philistines were afraid because they had heard of the power of the Ark. They heard of the power of God. And they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, woe unto us, this is not good. For there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with the plagues. They had heard the stories of what had happened and what had transpired in the wilderness. Verse 9, be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews. As they have been to you, quit yourself. So rise up like men and, and fight. And the Philistines fought. And the Philistines died that day. Is that what it said? No. And Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel, how many men? 30,000. Now think about this. You think, well, how would that happen? They have the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant with them, God's very presence. But was this God's desire? Was this God's plan? No. Whose plan was it? Theirs. How many times have we done this in our own life? We concoct a plan, and man, God, this is a great plan. This is what you need to do. But is it God supposed to be listening to us, or are we supposed to be listening to God? We're supposed to be listening to God to help you out. <laughs> We're supposed to be the one listening to God, doing what God calls us to, go, to do. Nowhere in this chapter or other chapters do we see that God said, all right, here's the plan. Here's what I want you to do, Samuel and Israel. I want you to gather the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to take it out into the presence of the people. And once you bring it out in the presence of the people, all the Philistines will be destroyed. We don't see that. What we see is the men of Israel gathered together and they have an idea. They sought amongst themselves, didn't seek the Lord, and, hey, here's the idea. Here's what we need to do. So they didn't consult with God. They didn't ask God. And because of that, 30,000 people lost their life. Think about that. How many initially lost their life on that first battle? Four. How many lost their life on this battle? 
30,000, don't you think it's important to listen to the voice of God? It is. It's very important. Let's continue on. It's very important. And the ark of God was taken. So not only is it bad enough that 30,000 men lost their lives, but now the ark of the covenant was taken, was stolen. That was the presence of God. It was supposed to be in Shiloh, in the tabernacle, and eventually it was, uh, a temple was built. Solomon had built a temple there in Jerusalem to, to house it, and it was supposed to be there. That's where God wanted it. You know, I was thinking about this morning, and I know it's a poor illustration, but imagine, say you're younger. We have some teenagers in here today, but imagine you're younger, and you have some friends over, and you know, your parents have something very valuable, and you, you get it out, you show your friends, and they're like, oh, that's awesome. I'm going to take it. And they take it, and they take it home with them, and you're like, oh, snap. Shouldn't have done that. Your parents probably aren't going to be too happy with you, are they? Because you let your friends take something that wasn't theirs. And in a sense, I know it's a poor illustration, but that's kind of what happened here. They should have never brought the Ark of the Covenant out, and the Philistines now have the Ark of the Covenant. They have God's presence, and God's presence wasn't supposed to be with the enemy, was it? It was supposed to be with his people. Verse 11, it was taken out. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And they ran. Uh, there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and, and came to Shiloh on the same day with his clothes rent and with the earth upon his head. And he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled. But the ark of God, and, uh, and bled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. They knew something bad had just happened. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, what meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was 90 and eight years old, 98 years old. His eyes were dim and he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army. I fled today out of the army. And he said, what has there done, my son? And the messenger said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there hath also been a great slaughter. Also, uh, your two sons are dead. On top of that, the ark has been taken. When it came to pass, he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off his seat backwards by the side of the gate and his neck broke, and he died. For he was an old man and heavy. And he judged Israel 40 years and his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife was with child to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed. She had her child. And about the time of the death, the woman that stood by her said, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, because she was dead. Verse 21. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory of God is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken and because her father-in-law and her husband were dead, and she said, the glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. You know, this is pretty, pretty, it's a pretty intense story. But it doesn't stop there. Let's continue on, chapter 5. And the Philistines took the ark of God, and brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod, now, where was the ark supposed to be? Shiloh. That's where it was supposed to be. 
It's not in Shiloh anymore. It's in Ashdod. It's with the enemy. When the Philistines took the Ark of the God, they brought it into the house of Dagon. You know who Dagon was? He was a false god. He was the national god of the Philistines. He was, he was known as the fish god. He had the head of a fish and the body of a man. It's kind of interesting. So think about this. So they brought it, they brought the Ark of God, Ark of the Covenant, and they put it in the house of Dagon, this false god. Put it next to it. And when they of Ashdod arose early in the morning, this is, this is pretty cool. Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. I find that interesting. I think it's pretty cool. Now, how did that happen? That was God, right? Because God doesn't take too lightly his presence being with false gods. He was going to take care of this the way that he needed to take care of it. He allowed the Philistines, the enemy, to take it, but he was trying to teach the Israelites a lesson here. And as we continue this story, we're not going to read it all for sake of time, but let me, let me continue on verse number uh, three. And they, uh, they took Dagon after he was fallen, and he was, he was basically laying down, bowing down to the Ark of the Covenant, which is a pretty cool thing. I think it is. Verse number four, and when they arose early in the morning, uh, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the ground before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hand the next day after they had set him up were cut off. So the next day it happened again, and this day they were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. And what continues on in the next chapter, the next chapters, is pretty interesting. People in the city that uh, the Ark of the Covenant was at there in the Philistines were overtaken with sores on their body. They had a rat infestation. Anybody like rats? Probably not. I don't mean like one rat. So they had a lot of rats that were just taking over the city. So they're like, all right, we got to do something with this. So what they did was they gave it to their neighbors. <laughs> like, hey, you take care of this. So they, they gave the Ark of the Covenant to their neighbors. The Bible is a pretty interesting book. It's pretty awesome, especially the Old Testament. So they gave it to their neighbors, and this went on for seven months. Same thing happened to their neighbors. Their neighbors were fallen with sores on their body and and rats were all over. And finally, after seven months, they're like, okay, we've got to get rid of this. We've got to send it back to Israel. And then for the next hundred years, the Ark of the Covenant was in Kirjath, or Kirjath-Jerim. And then finally, David returns the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And that's where we find ourselves in 2 Samuel <laughs> chapter number 24. There's a lot more in between that that we just don't have time to read, but it's very important to understand that, to set the stage. This brings us back to Second Samuel, or, or, sorry, Psalm chapter 24. So turn back there with me if you would. What God established for the Israelites is very true for us today. You see, God created the Israelites in his image. He purposed them to love him. He set them apart for his glory and equipped them for his good work. He established a covenant with them, an arrangement with them, whereby God would provide for them, protect them, and leave their souls satisfied and, and fulfilled. All of this, God's protection, his provision, his fulfillment was in exchange for basically one thing. Do you know what it was? Here's what it was. It was in exchange for letting God be God in their lives. All of God's protection, all of God's provision, 
all of God's fulfillment, all of God's satisfaction, all they had to do was let God be their God. The same is true for us today. If you want all of God's blessings, now you have to be saved first and foremost, but if you want God's blessing, God's provision, God's protection, God's fulfillment, satisfaction, then you have to let God be your God. It can't be one of many gods. It can't be only when you allow him to. All God wanted was a wholehearted yes from Israel. All he wants from us today is a wholehearted yes. But as you study the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, it's really not bashing them because the same problem is true of us today. What happened with the nation of Israel is many times they did not give God a wholehearted yes, did they? No. But at the same time, they also did not give God a wholehearted no. It wasn't, no, we don't want God's protection. No, we don't want to serve God. What they did, in a sense, was, eh, maybe. Eh, maybe we'll serve God. Maybe we'll do what God wants us to do if it goes according to our plans. Don't we do this today? It's as if they were saying maybe to God. You see, they wanted God's blessings, but they also wanted their independence. And I think that's what happens with many of us today. Especially in America, we want our independence. We want God when things are going bad, right? God, I'm going to cry out to you, Lord, I need you at this time in my life. But when everything's going well, all right, I don't need you, God. I'm out. Um, I'm out the door of the church. I don't need to read my Bible. And you know, I don't need to focus on you. We want our independence. And what we do is we look for fulfillment in anything and everything but God sometimes. We try to meet our needs with things other than God. Now, there are a lot of good things in life. But the best thing is a relationship with God. That's the thing that God designed us for, that God designed his church for, that God designed his children for. And here's what happens. Let's really get deep today. Here's what happens when we try to meet the need of God with other things. Maybe you're trying to meet the need of sex by watching porn and sleeping around. Maybe you're trying to meet your need for clothing by overshopping and overspending. Maybe you're trying to meet your need for community by people-pleasing and manipulation. Maybe you're trying to meet your need for success by steamrolling colleagues and elbowing your way up the corporate ladder. Get this down. Independence means trying to meet God-given needs in ways that do not honor him. And what needs to happen when this happens is a reset to get back to what is optimally performing. What needs to happen is our hearts needs to be turned back to God. Our hearts slowly drift away from God, slowly get out of tune with him. Our worship is not focused on God, but it's focused on self. The dictionary defines worship this way, to honor or show reverence, to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor or devotion. I was reading a devotion this morning on um, worship, I just want to read something quickly. Uh, one person said this. Worship, it's, it's where God isn't moved by the quality of our voice, but by the condition of our hearts. It's not about how much we sing or how loud we sing, but it's the condition of our hearts. In the simplest terms, worship is ascribing unspeakable value and displaying substantial love to something. That thing may be a deity, 
an ancient artifact, a material possession, human being? So the question is, what are we worshiping? What is it that holds the top position in our hearts? Back in Psalm chapter 24, specifically verses 3 through 6, we discover the heart of the worshiper. And in verse number 3, look at these two questions again. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Talking about the mountain of the Lord, Mount Zion. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall stand in the presence of God? And when you think about this, it's almost overwhelming. Like, who can ascend into the mountain of God? Who can stand in his presence? And it almost asks the question, who is worthy? And I think of what John went through in Revelation chapter 5 when he was standing and overwhelmed with everything that he was seeing. And man, who is going to be able to, to do all this and, and, and open the scroll? And, and, the, and the angel said, it's okay. Because there is one that is worthy, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ is worthy, but Jesus Christ has made us righteous in him. He has given us a chance to stand in his presence through salvation, the gift that he has offered us. And David, in this psalm, and I want you to get this for the next few minutes as we close this out and make the application for us this morning. David wants us to consider who can approach the glory of the king who can stand in his very presence? And we consider the superiority of God, especially concerning his power and authority over our lives, over all the things of the earth. Who can possibly stand in the presence of God? The answer seemingly is no one except for Christ, but God has given us a way. Look at verse number four. The first thing that must happen is this. There must be a cleansing. There must be a cleansing. It says in verse 4, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. The phrase clean hands and a pure heart describes someone who is both pure within and without. It's not just talking about cleaning up the outside. That's easy to do, right? You're dirty, you go take a shower. You're clean on the outside. But God, and David specifically here, is talking about cleaning up the inside. Over and over through the Old Testament specifically, we see God addressing the Israelites. And I think of before they crossed over Jordan, remember in Joshua chapter 3, before they crossed over Jordan, uh, Joshua said to them, sanctify yourselves. What was he saying? Clean yourselves. Clean up your acts. You can't go into the promised land with dirty hearts and dirty minds, impure thoughts, impure deeds. You can't do that. God wants you to be clean. God wants you to be pure. Look, God has no use for the artificial praise of whitewashed tombs, fine-looking monuments that are full of dead men's bones. Both our hands, our hearts must be clean. Now, really, this passage is in correlation to James chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, draw nigh to God, and what? He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Verse 4 is pretty comprehensive, and here's the notes for this morning. It covers our deeds, our thoughts, our desires, and our words. Clean hands, this speaks of what we do. A pure heart, this speaks of what we think. Who hath lifted up his soul into vanity, that speaks of what we long for and what we speak or seek after. Where it says, nor sworn deceitfully, this speaks of what we say. That phrase at the end of verse number four, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, this is a command to us about having a right relationship with others. We are to be honest people with one another, not to be fake with other people. 
We must treat each other with honesty and with respect, submitting one another just as Christ perfectly showed submission by dying on our behalf. We will not see God and be in his presence if our love for others is only self-serving instead of self-sacrificing. And I've known a lot of people in my life that have a self-serving love and not a self-sacrificing love. And if that's you today, then it's time for a reset. It's time to reset your heart. You see, there must be a cleansing to truly stand in the presence of God. The purity that we have been longing for is only found in Jesus Christ. We come to him and he comes close to us, as it says in James chapter 4. As we draw nigh to God, what happens? He draws nigh to us. And what happens is we become transformed, purified, made whole through him. Get this down. The resetting of our heart is a prerequisite for worship. First and foremost, there must be a cleansing. Look at verses 5 and 6. Not only must there be a cleansing, but we see once there is a cleansing, there will always be a reward. Don't you love rewards? Don't you love it when uh, you've done something well and someone rewards you for it? I do. The same is true with God. If we do what he asks us to do, God will reward us. He will reward our faithfulness. He will reward our obedience. And that's what he desires, wholehearted obedience. Not partial obedience, not partial faith, not a heart that's sometimes in tune with him and sometimes in tune with other things. He wants a heart that is always in tune with him. And when our heart is clean and pure and in tune with God, he will reward us. Look what he says in verse five. David says, he shall receive the blessings from the Lord. Don't you want God's blessings? And righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of him that seek him, that seek thy face. O Jacob, see law. Look, this does not state that God will do everything that we want or desire. But when we ask according to his will, when we obey, when we're faithful, God will bless us. Here's the truth and here's the point in your notes. The same thing that God promised to give Israel, the same blessings that he gave them are the same blessings we can have today. His protection, his provision, his guidance, his grace. This is the reward that God gives his children. This is the reward, the blessing, when you have a heart that is reset a heart that is in tune to him. And that's the goal of this series and the goal of this message, to make sure that our heart is truly in tune with God. But pastor, I'm here. Isn't that enough? No, it's not. I don't care if you're here. I mean, I do, but I don't. I want you to be fully committed to God in all areas of your life because I want you to receive the rewards that God wants you to give. I want you to have his protection, his provision, his guidance, and his grace. I want you to have these rewards. I want to have these rewards, but I'll only have them if I'm doing what he wants me to do. If I'm resetting, getting back to that optimal function in my life. Listen, if there's something in your life that you're putting your faith in and trust in more than Jesus, then one day, it's going to fall down just like Dagon at the feet of Jesus. The Philistines thought, oh, we can put the Ark of the Covenant, we can put God next to our God, and it'll be okay. But God said, no, 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 it's not okay. 
and it fell flat on his face. The next day, his hands and head were cut off. Your gods, your little g gods, will be cut off by the big God, by the God, uh, the living God, the true God. It's going to fall down. It will fall at the feet of Jesus. It can be your spouse. It could be your parents' faith. It could be your good words, your habits, your addictions, the likes that you receive on Facebook. Whatever it is you're putting your faith in today will someday bow down before the living Lord and say, I am not worthy. And you know what? It's not. It's absolutely not worthy of your faith because only Jesus is worthy of your faith. And those with reset's heart, reset hearts trust in Jesus alone. You see, the premise of this message in the series is understanding that Jesus changes everything. Why do we reset things? Because they're malfunctioning. They're not working properly. So what in your life right now is not functioning properly? I dare say that there's many people in this room that have something in their life that is not functioning properly. Maybe it's your heart. And that's actually what I want you to do with these cards. I don't want you to write your name on there. I want you to actually just write what needs to be reset. Jesus, reset my heart, faith, integrity, identity, passion, desire. You have to put it down. I don't want your name. I want what it is. And the reason I want this, because here in a few minutes when we have the invitation, I have one more illustration and we'll close, but... When we have the invitation, I'm going to ask you to do something different this morning. I'm going to ask you to come and lay these cards at the altar. And the reason I'm doing this is because, Lord willing, this Wednesday and by next Sunday, what we're going to do is have a prayer wall that I'm going to build. And I want to post these cards on there. And really, I don't want to know people's names. I want this for the purpose of myself and my staff and even the church that we can pray for them. Prayer is important. Prayer changes lives. And it's not about, oh, let's pray for Amanda because she needs Jesus to reset her. That's not what it's about. It's, Jesus, will you help this person that is struggling with their identity, their passion, their drive, their desire, their marriage, whatever? I want you to do that so we can pray because prayer changes lives. So, oh, I'm a private person. I don't want that. We need people. We need each other. Let me close with one more illustration and I'm done. Anybody like M&M's? Anybody at all today? Oh, we got a couple. All right, Carrie, come on up. We'll use you. I've got M&M's up here today. All right. I don't have Skittles, sorry. Just M&M's. I got a fun-sized pack of M&M's. I love M&M's. It's one of my favorite candy. Now, these little fun-sized pack of M&M's, really, I mean, there's not much in there. You can come on up here. There's not much in there. It's probably like, I don't know, seven or ten. Let me open them up. Yeah, it was maybe, maybe 10 or 12. Now, Carrie likes M&M's, obviously. If he's like, hey, hey, man, can I have some M&M's? I may give him one just because I'm a good person. But most of the time, I probably wouldn't because there's not, there, there's not there many in there. But if I had like two or three packs, I'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's okay. You can have this. No big deal. It's not a big deal. But sometimes that's kind of what we, we think with our relationship with God we're wanting God to, to provide for us, and we're wanting God to do something, and, and we're, wanting, we're wanting to do something in the life of others, but sometimes we're stingy. Well, I've only got just a couple, so I don't think I can really, really bless you, but here's the thing. God wants to bless us. 
God has a lot of resources available at his disposal, does he not? What we do so often is like, you know what? I don't think you deserve that. Uh, I've got several, but here, this is all you deserve. I don't even know if you deserve that. Now you're fine. I read that every day in America, over 400 million M&Ms are made. That's a lot of M&Ms. Now imagine if I had at my disposal 400 million M&Ms. One, I'd be very fat. Very fat. Because I'd be eating them all. But it'd be a lot easier for me to dispose of the M&Ms, wouldn't it? Because I have a lot at my disposal. But if I only have a handful, it's going to be a little bit harder for me to dispose of these M&Ms. But you see, God has a lot of resources at his disposal. It's not just, well, here's one. That's all you get. No, here's, here's what God says. Here's, here's one. Here's a package. Here's a package. Oh, I think I have some more. Here you go. Here's that. I think I got some more. Here you go. I think there's some more down here. Yeah, there you go. You got it? I think there's some more. Here you go. That's what God does for us. God has plenty of resources available at his disposal. He wants to share it with us. He wants to reward us, but we have to reset our hearts, church. We have to do what God calls us to do. Thanks, you can go down. What in your life is not functioning optimally? What are you missing out on? What blessings does God want to give you, but you're not getting because your heart is not reset? 